0: So keep on working on this, I'm working hard on this. This pain office it is
1: oh Hi there and welcome. You're listening to the Diving In Podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this
0: week. Diving in. Hi, Lou. Hi. Hi, lovely divers. We have a very fun theme today. That's hard to say. Yes. <laughs> it's a bit... Very fun thing. <laughs> you feel like you've got a... Little... Thumb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We have a very fun theme today uh, and it's one that's a fair way outside of our usual scope of reading to say yes. the least. Uh, we're back in our studio aka Louisa's study with our massive cups of tea and some very fun books to chat mm-hmm. about and we had such a lovely response to our first episode in did. 2021 we did. didn't we? Yeah. So we want to thank everyone for your kind messages, that was so lovely. So today we are going to talk about a book that we've just finished, then we'll talk about the books in our theme, and then uh, we'll talk about any other book news that we might have, and then we'll talk about things, other things that we've been diving into lately. So, before we discuss our theme books, let's have a chat about a book we've just yep, finished. Good idea. Did you want to go first, Lou? Yeah, okay.
1: All right. Well, um, the book I've most recently finished is the fictional Girl A by Abigail Dean. This book is a very recent release at the end of January this year and you and I read some advanced publicity from the publisher about this book last year and I I was intrigued. I thought it sounded a great book but I didn't know then the impact that the book would have in the publishing world. So the author... Sent it to agents in June 2019 and it became part of a nine-way auction in the UK. And it sold for a six-figure sum in the UK and a seven-figure sum in the US. And Sony have acquired the film rights. I was about
0: to say, I bet you.
1: this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes with that sort of background, you almost don't want to know it before you read. And I was thinking, is this book going to live up to the hype? And I, I can say for me, categorically, yes. I couldn't put it down. I love crime books, I love books that explore complex psychologies and I love books that examine family relationships and this book has all of those in spades but most of all I thought it was beautifully written. There's a very confident sort of ease to the prose and I just kept turning the pages but because it's a very, very recent release and lots of you are going to pick this up. I'm I'm going to be very careful about what I say. The narrator of the book is Lex Gracie, short for Alexandra, and she is one of the many Gracie siblings who grew up together in the north of England with abusive parents uh, who imprisoned their children and who starved them, amongst other things. And the book opens with Lex. She's been advised of her mother's death uh, in prison and she's returned to the UK from New York because she's been invited to collect her mother's belongings and to discuss the will. And that's sort of the setup that you're given right from the get go. In terms of Lex and her family, Abigail Dean's been very open about the fact that she's sort of taken inspiration from the true crime stories, you know, Fred and Rosemary West in the UK. And then I think there's a Californian couple, the Turpins, that was sort of the moniker for that was the House of Horrors case, although it seems to me that all cases like this are called House of Horrors. And she's been particularly inspired by the sort of tenacity and will of teenage girls in particular to dig deep into their reserves and to get away. And that's not a spoiler because the book commences with the fact that Lex and her siblings escaped and survived. And that's a deliberate strategy of the author because... For a couple of reasons, actually. She didn't want to focus on the period of the horrors. She didn't want that to be the focus of the book. She wanted the focus to be the aftermath and the sort of psychological journey and also... And what it's like to be a survivor of something like that. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And also, of course, she wanted to reveal to us in a very slow drip feed courtesy of Lex's memories and her dreams and flashbacks about what actually happened. And and I think she's been very successful because you, you're quite gripped. You, want, you kind of want to know what, what happened. But, you know, as you, you mentioned survivors, I like the fact that this is viewed through the lens of the survivors, primarily girl A, Lex, because I think so often we're obsessed, aren't we, with the personality and actions of the perpetrators?
0: Yes, that's true.
1: What they did, how they did it, why they did it. And in some respects the survivors and victims are kind of relegated to the perspective of what was done to them. Yes. Which, of course, is still focusing on the perpetrator. And so I think it's very powerful to start a story with, we made it. Yeah. Now look at our lives, look what we're capable of, look how this has affected us. So we kind of become very invested in Lex's story and through her siblings, because, of course, she has to contact them to talk about the mother's will. And the relationships with the siblings are a major part of the book, and I'm not going to talk about them at all, but you can imagine how complex they may be. There's also a really well-drawn, I think, relationship with her psychiatrist, who she's called Girl A, of course, Lex, so the psychiatrist is called Ms K, and I I, I like the way she's done that. And she remains in Lex's life, and that relationship really adds to sort of the overall response that I had to this book, you know, her journey. And I, I found it, it very moving, actually,
0: and ultimately quite hopeful. And the interesting thing was the way the siblings all had such different Absolutely, um, different perspectives. Stories. yeah, clearly. and
1: different reactions to yeah. what happened to them. And you're, you're viewing it through the lens of one child. Yeah, um, and how she's perceiving her siblings. Absolutely, but, yeah. absolutely. But how she's perceiving her siblings and how she's perceiving what happened, what they did, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So, yeah, n- no question. And just by chance, I was thinking about what I was going to say today and yesterday I was watching... National Press Club on ABC. Oh, yes. Yes, and the speech made by Grace Tame. The Australian of the Year. Australian of the Year, Very young Australian of the Year. Yes, so she's been awarded for her incredible work in the field of sexual assault and she is herself a survivor of sexual assault, having been groomed and assaulted by her 58-year-old teacher at school. Um, And she's so articulate, isn't she, for 27 She's incredible. And she was talking about this idea of perpetrators versus survivors mm-hmm. um, and and the focus that's traditionally given to perpetrators rather than and on their abusive conduct rather than the subsequent journey of the victims. And she had this wonderful thing to say, which I thought was worth repeating. She said, the trauma lives on. Our unconscious bodies are steps ahead of our conscious brain.
0: Wow! And I just thought
1: that was incredible.
0: Yeah, I don't remember that bit. Yeah, um, but yes,
1: that is, and fantastic. I thought it was really apt, given mm. the, you mm. know, given the focus of this book. Look, it won't be everybody's cup of tea because you know it's obviously dealing with a, you know a traumatic subject matter. But I, it's an early call for me. I think it may be one of my favourite books for
0: twenty twenty one. Wow! Now that's interesting because I after we. We looked at it on the computer when we were looking mm. at books for the year mm. and I saw that it, it said something about uh, she was a lawyer and worked in a bookshop and I thought that was the character. <laughs> and I left there and went straight to the bookshop and there it was. So I bought it and started yeah. reading it that day. So I had a completely wrong impression mm. of what it was about and it wasn't as cosy. No, <laughs> as it's I was not expecting. remotely cosy at no. all. Uh, and so I found it pretty grim, yes. I have to say. At, um And I wouldn't say I loved it, but I agree that I thought the writing was very good and I thought it had a fantastic twist. Yes, no, it does have a sensational twist. Which... um, sort of colored him sort of colored my view of it overall and I thought actually this is a better book than I sort of thought yes. while I was reading yes. because I didn't know that was coming yeah. in um, it's
1: so interesting isn't it starting to read a book with this sort of preconceived yes. idea about what it just it's changes just like it everything in life yes. expectation yeah. versus reality yeah. and, whereas i yeah. knew that it was yes. a house of horrors yes. kind yes. of you know yeah. i mean i think it's extraordinarily crafted given that um as far as we know, this is entirely fictional for this author. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I did th- keep thinking of Rosemary West. Yes, oh absolutely. I... And she, But she writes beautifully. I think, yeah. I think, yeah. anyway, that's Girl A by Abigail Dean and it's published by HarperCollins. What about you? What uh, have you just
0: finished? So one that I've finished is one I've been wanting to read for a while. In fact, two of the books we're going to talk about today are recommendations from the Currently Reading podcast, mm. which we sort of think of as our American sister podcast. Yes, they're wonderful. They're, we love them. And one of these days we're going to get to America and meet up with yes. Meredith and Katie and uh, Mindy and Mary. I think that would be so fun. It would. We, it would be really fun to do a joint it podcast. Would. We could do with, a Zoom podcast We, we, with we might It'd have be to fantastic. think about it. Yeah, it would be a lot of fun and Meredith absolutely loves Louise Penny. I have mm. never heard of her, mm. and she's very clear about the fact that you have to read the still-life books by Louise Penny or the, the, the Louise Penny Inspector Gamush books in order, yes, which, you know, I like to do as well. And and she's also made it very clear that in her opinion, they get really good after about book four or five. Mm. So I thought, well, I'll order book one, which is not on sale in Australia, I don't think. And I've just finished it. And the first thing I have to say about this book is that it has a map in the front. <laughs> and I love a map. Yes. But does that mean that you need that map in order to read no, the book? No, it's an extremely simple map. It's really just a diagram okay. of, the, of a set central grassy bit and some okay. trees in a forest okay. so it's very so it's not easy showing you where where essential no okay but it just gives you a bit of an idea of of how things work and it's a beautiful map because there's lots of trees it's just mm. it's just gorgeous. i must have referred back to this map about 20 times mm. while i was reading it just for fun It sort of takes me back to Millie Molly Mandy, which she used to have a Oh, yes,
1: I remember Uh, that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that got me off to a very good start. And then there's the opening paragraph, which I have to read to you. Miss Jane Neal met her maker in the early morning mist of Thanksgiving Sunday. It was pretty much a surprise all round. Miss Neal's was not a natural death. Unless you're of the belief everything happens as it's supposed to. If so, for her 76 years, Jane Neal had been walking toward this final moment when death met her in the brilliant maple woods on the verge of the village of Three Pines. She'd fallen spread-eagled as though making angels in the bright and brittle leaves. Beautiful. Isn't that great? Yeah. So you get an idea that Mm. Jane Neal probably didn't deserve to meet her maker in that way, which is true. And uh, it, that just completely got me hooked. And so then we meet Inspector Armand Gamache and he's of the Sûreté du Québec mm. uh, and he's so lovely and he's also very clever. He's, he's just a great investigator throughout the story. And so then the story opens with Jane Neal witnessing three boys committing a, a minor crime mm. in town, but they're all wearing ski masks. Mm. and Is it winter? Yes, but she thinks that she recognises their voices Uh and she calls out their names. You know, she says,
1: Mm.
0: Bill, John and Barry, uh, stop, 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 stop. And by calling out their names, perhaps that might have had something to do with her Uh unhappy end. Her demise. So there are lots of twists and turns. Mm. I think you suspect everyone in town. (laughs) one point. (laughs) Uh, I really enjoyed it. I think, I don't even know how many she's done now. It's a massive number. And I really want to read more. So much so that I've decided I'm going to actually buy an e-reader because I just can't have that many more physical books in my house. I'm already drowning. She's the author that Hillary Clinton recommends, isn't she? Yes. Yes. So Hillary Clinton is going to be writing a novel with Louise Penny, and it's a, it's going to be a thriller called State of Terror. Wow. I mean, just I just can't wait. And I'm just sort of fascinated by this pairing of yes. the two of them. In her tweet about it on Twitter, uh, Hillary said that Louise is a dear friend. Yes. So I don't know whether this was driven by whether it was a publisher's idea, you know, hey, you know, we could make some money here. <laughs> maybe it's something they've always said yes, they do. Or maybe uh, yeah. if they're friends they thought wouldn't it be fun to write a novel together. And I'm also really intrigued about the process of co-writing a novel. Mm. Like do you have to give way on ideas that you have? How do you come up with yes. satisfactory joint yes. ideas? Does one person more drive the plot, one more drive the writing? Do you go off and write separate chapters? Do you alternate? Yes. <laughs> it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, so I would love to, and I'm sure there'll be interviews, yeah. I'd love to hear the, their process for doing it. I'm not sure whether, I don't know anything about Louise Penny, but, you know, I imagine that there'll be a lot of publicity and there'll yes. be interviews and they'll probably talk about yes. that process. So I'll be really interested to see what it's like and, and then how they did it.
1: Yeah, fascinating.
0: Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah.
1: Yeah, as a process. And Bill Clinton, I think, has written a book with James he, Patterson, he has, hasn't he? He yes. has.
0: I haven't heard whether that's any good or not. No. It's not I'm not a James Patterson reader,
1: so. Yeah, we do have it. And I, I don't think anybody in the family was especially blown away, blown no, away by no, it. No. Okay, yeah, yeah.
0: That's interesting. So our theme today is one that neither of us have read at all, really? Mm-hmm. No, certainly not. Since I was about sixteen, and it's romance novels, mm-hmm. and it's just a theme we just couldn't resist. I'm pretty sure this started when we were discussing Stacey Abrams. It did, yes. And the incredible role that she played in the outcome of the uh, 2020 American presidential mm-hmm. election, and then the, of course, there was the uh, the two runoff Senate elections in Georgia in January this year. You know, in my opinion, she sort of single handedly yes. saved democracy. <laughs> <laughs> And I actually don't think that that's too much of an exaggeration, Mm. but anyway. And so we started talking about Stacey Abrams and her impressive CV and the fact that she writes these romance suspense novels. So they're not just romance, they're romance suspense, which is an interesting combination. Mm. And she writes them under the non diploma Selena Montgomery, which is such an unexpected thing for her to do. Well, Mm. I think it is. Yeah, absolutely. But I think we both thought it was just such Mm. a fun aspect Mm. to her. So we decided to do a podcast episode on romance novels and here we are. She started writing them when she was at university, I think, didn't she? She was quite young and she did. So we've each read a different book by Selena Montgomery, mm-hmm. and then we've read two by another very different romance writer. So Stacey Abrams was born in 1973. She's the second of six siblings in a fairly poor family. She was raised in Mississippi and then in Georgia. And during her childhood, her parents sort of went back and retrained sort of a bit later in life to become Methodist ministers. She has a Bachelor of Arts from Spelman College. Then she studied a Master of Public Affairs. And then she earned a Juris Doctor from Yale, Mm. Yale Law School. She's worked as a tax attorney. She was a member of the Georgia General Assembly. And then she ran for governor. Of Georgia in 2018 and only narrowly lost that election, I think by something like 55,000 votes. And most importantly, I think she's established, I think it's two organisations to counteract voter suppression. Yes. And she's really worked tirelessly for about a decade or more Mm to counteract the state-sanctioned voter Mm. suppression in Georgia. And I think her work is now becoming a model for what other states can do with this problem. Getting people out to vote. Which is a problem that we do not have in Australia, we should stress, because we have compulsory voting and it's just not an issue for us, certainly not at all in this this way. So she started writing these novels in third-year law and then she kept writing them until I think 2009 was the last one. And then she's now written a Supreme Court thriller mm. and it's coming out very soon called When Justice Sleeps. Yeah, can't wait. And we're really looking forward to that. But we thought it'd be fun to read one of her other books before then. They're very cute in that they're all published in these tiny formats, mm. sort of like, as you said, Lou, you can almost pop them in your pocket. <laughs> I know, it's they're so Pocket-sized harlequin Harlequin romances. It's like you need to
1: secrete it away so no one knows you're <laughs> <Yeah>. reading it. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's, it's hilarious. Nice. Mine's called A Harper Torch Romance <laughs> and it's got a, you know, hilarious cover. I think it's very funny. Yeah. But this book was not remotely what I was expecting mm. because I read the other romance writer first. Yes. And I was expecting them to be fairly similar and I'll talk about my other one in yeah. a second. But if I had to come up with another writer for comparison, you know, with the caveat that I really don't read this genre. Yes. But I think I would say it's a tiny bit like the Janet Ivanovich, Stephanie Plum series. I don't know if you've ever read any of them, Lou they start off one for the money then there's two for the dough three to get ready and she's now up to tantalising 27 I checked on (laughs) Wikipedia and I read one to nine I think wow that's impressive yeah (laughs) and Stephanie Plum is the most fantastic character and I used to read them as for escapism they were great fun she always had these two guys on the go Mm. so there was always a bit of a triangle and one was sort of a bad boy and one was a better boy and they're great books this sort of reminds me of mm. that in the sense that there's a lot of gunshots and chases and yes. a lot of adrenaline mm. and a lot of drama. So mine is called Hidden Sins, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is just a great title. And it has a young woman uh, who's the main protagonist, her name's Mara Reed, and she's described as having been stirring up trouble <laughs> since she was 18. Running <laughs> scams, living on the edge, always on the run. <laughs> Um, So I'm going to be very careful not to reveal any spoilers in this. So I'm literally only going to outline the opening bit and what's on the dust jacket. Yep. So the prologue is set back in 1937 in a circus tent in Austin, Texas, and there's a gang of men and they're all getting a Greek symbol tattooed on Mm. each of their hips by a Japanese lady named Aiko. And we later realised that the leader of the men is a preacher named Micah Reed, who is Mar- Mara's grandfather. And this gang of men have pulled off a heist and they've stolen some gold in a train robbery. And in 1937, or around that time, President Roosevelt had uh, placed an embargo on the owning of gold. Mm. So the gang have to hide it and wait. Mm. And, and I think they, they wait, hoping that... That will change, and that they can convert the gold into, you know, usable cash. So they plan to meet up on a specific date in two years' time, and use the tattoos which contain the coordinates of where the gold (laughs) has been buried. So what happened was, uh, Micah had the gold put into a safe, and it's a very complicated system. Mm. And then he gave everyone. Each of the men a key. Yes. And then they had to go, one man got to go and buried the gold, another man buried the safe, and then the others all buried their key. And they told him where they'd buried these things and he was a student of ancient Greek and he converted their (laughs) coordinates into ancient Greek and had that tattooed on their hip. Sounding very complicated. Very complicated but quite fun. Yes. (laughs) I went. On, I was on board. <laughs> you know, I love a bit of a you know treasure hunt. <laughs> yes. It's basically what this is. It's yes. a treasure hunt. Yeah, and uh, they say let's meet back here in two mm. years' time, and then that's the end of the prologue. And then we fast forward to the present time, and granddaughter Mara Reed seems to be some kind of lying scheming con artist <laughs> which is an unusual thing to make your main character <laughs> yes yes because you know I, I find it a little bit hard to get on board with yes a she's not, very, <laughs> not very very sympathetic character at yeah all. but maybe that's not really what she's like but that's what she seems like mm. when when it first begins she certainly lives on her wits And as the book progresses, you find out more about Mara, which I really liked. So we first meet Mara and she's in a bar in Michigan. And this is all on the back cover, by the way. I'm not actually telling any of the plot. She's wearing a wig and she's there to make contact with someone. And uh, they meet up, events unfold, which I'm not going to elaborate on, and suddenly she's on the run Mm. and she's being chased down by two other murderous psychopaths Mm. (laughs) who are shooting at her, They're chasing her through the streets and she's running and windows are being wound down and shots are being aimed at her. And then Chapter 1 opens with Mara. She's still being chased by these two men, but now we're in her hometown of Kiev in Texas. She has a bullet wound in her arm. She runs down an alleyway planning to escape through a secret route that she remembers from childhood. And then she comes to this enormous brick wall and she thinks, damn, this has been put up since I left town. 12 years ago and these men are in hot pursuit and this wall was not there when she was a teenager and it's this sort of a big warehouse and the men are closing in and suddenly a metal door opens an arm comes out pulls her inside the building and locks the door and saves her and that man is dr. Ethan Stewart her one and only true love. <laughs> From when she was 18. Yes. <laughs> it does seem quite convoluted, Virginia. <laughs> That's true. It's extremely convoluted. <laughs> and this is all in the dust jacket, so I'm not revealing it. And Stop. then. Damn big ju- dust jacket (laughs) well I've said the prologue and the dust jacket I can't tell you how much stuff happens in this book that I haven't even you know I'm not going anywhere near uh oh dear that's hilarious it is absolutely hilarious there is so much stuff that happens in this book there are caves there's buried treasure Mm. it's a treasure hunt there are map coordinates in ancient Greek there's a love triangle there are people who th- seem to have one identity and then they're revealed to have another, it's really good fun. Mm. I have to say th- there are many, many moments where I had to reread sentences and I think, oh, hang on, what's that about? I don't understand what happened <laughs> just there. Uh, <laughs> so I probably would have edited it a bit mm. more, but uh, lots of fun mm. is, is what I will say about it. And if for escapism, like pandemic escapism, this is a great book for yes, that. Yes. <laughs> so that's Hidden Sins mm-hmm. by Selena Montgomery. Excellent. Excellent. Yes. yes, good fun. So which book are you going to talk about first? Well, Luke? I might
1: talk about my other author first. Okay. <laughs> um, which is the Tessa Dare book, Romancing the Duke. And look, I, I don't want to generalise, but I think that the Selena Montgomery books, certainly I'm going to talk about my other one in, in a minute, they've got more substance to them. And um, from what right. you've just described about the one that you read, there is a whole heap of plot going on, as well as the romance, a whole heap and of the plot. lust, and the the sort of sexual side of it. It's things. an
0: because expe- it is romance suspense, yes, which is
1: different absolutely. from just straight romance. Yeah, and my, certainly my <laughs> Selena Montgomery is the same. There's, okay. a, there's a whole heap of action and plot going on at okay. the same time. Right. Well, as for the Tessa Dare novel, "Romancing the Duke," right. For my part. really wasn't very much else going on. (laughs) Now, I I don't wish to, you know, knock these books too much, but basically it caused me to go and do a little bit of Googling about the whole sort of history of romance novels and the sort of almost the formulaic nature of them and all the rest of it. And so I I found this article in The Atlantic magazine. It's from 2013, but you'll still be able to find it as I did. It's called Beyond Bodice Rippers, How Romance Novels Came to Embrace Feminism. It's a really interesting article because it talks about the sort of romance novels of the past which did follow a formula. You know, they're typically set in the past. There's a much older, brutal, almost, you know, rapist turned love hero and then there's this young virginal heroine. And is he usually wealthy? Yes, usually wealthy. Or powerful in some way. Yes, or powerful in some way. Mm -hmm. He has some cacheted dominance the article suggests that there was a shift in the 1980s and the 1990s and there was the emergence of a much more modern stronger heroine yeah it is isn't it yes but really the idea of feminism was still an anathema to the genre generally (laughs) but the suggestion is that now the women who write romance novels since the 90s have benefited themselves from the feminist movement
0: in what way? Well, they are the children of feminists. Oh, you mean so that is is reflected in the way yes, they write their yes, stories? Correct. I see what you mean.
1: And so my reaction would be yes, as far as the Selena Montgomery book I read for today's episode is concerned, but not as regards the Tessager. Because to me, to the extent there's any feminism in, in this novel, it's just this very constructed veneer. So, romancing the Duke is her first book in the Castles Ever After series, (laughs) okay? And it's about a girl called Isolde Goodnight, Izzy, and she is the daughter of a well-known children's author, Henry Goodnight, who has legions of fans for his stories, and he's now died and Izzy has been left destitute by her father with nowhere to go. So she learns that she's been gifted a castle by, (laughs) by her godfather, and she sets off to claim it. Oh, my God, I love it already. <laughs> uh,
0: only to discover that it's already inhabited by a duke. Of course it is. Yes. What, what? use is a castle if hasn't got a duke in it? Is he handsome and healthy and powerful? No. Okay. okay. Well, okay. some of those things. Okay. Uh, and this is
1: where the book starts to sort of suggest Beauty and the Beast. I mean, that's oh. the best way to describe <laughs> this book. It's Beauty and the Beast. The Beast is called Ransom and he is the Duke of Rothbury. And again... As with Virginia, I'm simply talking about the prologue and the back cover because there's, yeah. And he's the Duke of Rothbury and he's been hiding in the castle for some time because he's had an accident that has scarred his face. Oh, my God, this is very similar to mine. (laughs) Oh, there you go. And it's left him blind, basically, partially blind. So, he doesn't find out that his castle has been sold until <laughs> Izzy
0: arrives. So, he didn't sign the transfer papers.
1: Well, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't possibly say, Virginia. And the story is essentially the sort of the relationship between them as the ownership as of the castle is finally determined, you know. So, okay. that's really the story. Oh, okay. Okay. But, yep. And the, the, the sort of frisson and sexual encounters between Ransom and Izzy are physically quite aggressive and bawdy. You know, he runs his hands all over her <laughs> right from from the beginning, and that's you know it's feigned off as because he's blind and he needs to. <laughs> I know it's just terrible, absolutely terrible, <laughs> I'm sorry? and it's just terrible. And he, he <laughs> and the banter between them makes very light virginia's lost the plot <laughs> i didn't have you expect
0: oh my god so yeah that
1: he, that's excused by the fact that he's blind for the reader at least it's excused and then the banter between the two of them makes i'm actually about to say something serious virginia
0: so you've got Stop laughing. I just you, how can it possibly be okay for a man okay. to run his hair baby? Okay. So there's no feminism anyway. Oh my um, god.
1: That's hilarious. One thing I did find a bit objectionable is the sort of the banter between them makes sort of very much light of the, his threat of sexual dominance over Izzy. He tells her that she's at risk at being in his presence. Oh my um, lord. So she's drawn as this very naive young woman with a sort of pretty poor self-image. Who doesn't believe she's particularly attractive and desirable to the opposite sex. And then sort of her confidence grows. And we learn things about her which supposedly reveal an inner strength and capability. <laughs> and, you know, the equilibrium of the dynamic between them swings sort of her she, way. Okay, right. You know, I'm sorry, I really struggled with the silliness right. of the book. Okay. And the the crudeness of the sex and how sort of predictable the formula was. Am I allowed to say that? These are not, these books are not really for me at all. Yeah, say um, what you'd like. So, uh, <laughs> it um, so, yes, it, it just, it, it compare, I think, and of course, I am comparing it to the Selena Montgomery. Which did you read first? I read the Tessa Dare first. Uh-huh. So, um, yes, that's what I did too. Uh, and so when I read the Selena Montgomery, it was kind of like, oh, I kind of get it now. I get the genre now. Right. You know, there is a place. But for this one, this Tessa Dare,
0: I, I just... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it may just be the one that I've I've read. So is the book set in the past so that we have the social mores and expectations of society and the lack of feminism of the Regency period, do you think? Or do you think readers just think, well, this was back then and it, anything goes back then. And Yeah, I think that's why it's set in the Regency period. So that, okay. so that things that are
1: simply not acceptable okay. are, are given a veneer of acceptability because that's the way it was and he's a brutish man and yep. this, you know, silly girl came to claim his castle. And, yes, and okay. So, yeah, that's I think that's why it's set so in the So that's why uh, they yeah. don't use and the think, current And time. I think that there's no way that it would be acceptable. And that's interesting because we read lots of books that are set in days
0: gone by Yeah, that we excuse. Yes. Well, some of them, the very good ones, I'm thinking of, say, Jane Austen, were written in the time, so we have no expectation that they would be any different. Except that I think... Jane Austen
1: is more mannerly and more yeah. societal, yeah. whereas these are, are meant to be for an audience all about the romance, all about the relationship yeah. between them. That's true. And, and this one particularly,
0: the physical relationship yeah. between them. Yeah, well, the, both of them, both yeah. the ones we've bought. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, interesting. What about you? What Which Tessa Dare book did you read? So I read The Duchess Deal, and this is another book that I heard about from Meredith from Currently Reading Podcast uh, and she talked about it in very positive terms and I can see why. So this is, I would describe it as a historical romance that doesn't take itself seriously Mm. and it's a bit tongue-in-cheek, a little bit, it's quite fun and it's not meant to be taken at all seriously and it's got the cover, which has got the Mm. the man and the woman, and then it's got the more sort of saucy cover where her sleeves are all falling down. Yeah. yeah. And I did really love the beginning of this. I thought it was actually extremely clever because we're introduced to Emma Gladstone, who is the young female protagonist. And she's a young seamstress. She's a vicar's daughter, so she's a gentleman's daughter, but she's had a falling out with her father. Mm. And she's had to walk to London from her country town and make her way in the world. She, and she, she's alone in the world. Mm. And so we meet her and then we meet the Duke of Ashbury. And he's at his library desk and he's dictating a letter to his manservant, uh, who's dipping his quill into the inn and he's writing to his feckless solicitors. And he says, I don't know what the devil you've been doing for the past year, but the state of affairs is deplorable. And then he writes, and I need a wife. He needs a wife. He's got to um, have an heir to avoid his estate going to his horrible cousin. And then Mr Khan, hears the doorbell ring, he comes into the doorway and he says, Your Grace, I regret the interruption, but there's a young woman to see you. She's wearing a wedding gown. Mm. So Duke of Ashbury has just said I need a wife and the next minute a woman walks in wearing a wedding gown. I loved that. Mm. <laughs> it was very funny. <laughs> so he's returned from the Battle of Waterloo. And she has made the wedding dress for the duke's fiance, ah. who has broken off the engagement because she's so horrified by his scarring. Ah.
1: lots of lots and of disfigurement.
0: Lots of similarities.
1: Mm. And I have to say, in my book, Izzy has lost her father's inheritance she's to a cousin. Her, well, yes, to a cousin. Yeah, very similar. Mm. Of a formula there, and the solicitors are also on the nose in in romancing the Duke as well. Yes,
0: (laughs) pretty, pretty Pretty fabulous. So, Emma has made the wedding dress for the Duke's fiancee, she's broken off the engagement, but she has refused to pay for Mm. the wedding dress. So, Emma has turned up wearing the thing, hoping that that will persuade the Duke of Ashbury to pay her for her elaborate work. The Duke is badly scarred and he's very disfigured on one side of his Mm. face only. So you can still see how handsome he is if you look at him from this side but not from this side. And his chest and torso Mm. are also damaged and his shoulder. And Emma is very pretty. She's quite pert. She's rather a likeable character, I think. And so he says to her, I think you should marry me. I won't pay you for the wedding dress. I think you should marry me and you can become the Duchess of Ashbury. And he has some terms and conditions for the wedding. And he says, we will be husband and wife by night only. There'll be no lights and no kissing, no questions about my battle scarves. And once you're pregnant with my heir, you'll go off to my country estate And we never need to continue this charade ever again. Talk about having your cake and eating it. But Emma, this is on the back cover, but Mm. Emma is no pushover. She has a few rules of her own. She says, no, well, we're going to have dinner together every evening. We're going to have conversation and a few other little sort of minor conditions. And so that's really how the novel starts. And I'm not going to say any more other than it is pretty explicit. (laughs) Yeah, they are um, explicit. And uh, you get a warning because at the beginning, Tessa Dare does a little message to her dad saying, you know, Dad, I, I, I did grow up as a preacher's kid, but my dad was nothing like Emma's and Dad, please don't read chapters 7, 9, 11, 17, 19, mm. 21 or 28. Mm. <laughs> so you immediately know, okay, now I know where all the really raunchy bits are. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, which I thought was quite funny. So this one to me was perhaps a bit more explicit than the Selena Montgomery, which I felt used a bit, more, a few more euphemisms. Yes,
1: yeah, um,
0: which I found quite funny. Yeah,
1: you've made me think that maybe I'm taking my Tassadar too seriously, but I just it just irritated me. I think. Yeah. Well,
0: that's it's just not for you. I mean, yeah. it's not your it's not my genre either. But I have to say, I found it quite fun. Yes, and I did. I found it very interesting that she had them. They get married sort of the next day after mm. their agreement. And I think that's an interesting way to make sure that all of these raunchy scenes are committed within wedlock. Yes. Which satisfies a section of society. Yeah. And the other thing I really did love about this was that Emma, of course, being a a not noble herself, is not going to be introduced into society as such. But she receives an invitation from a lady to come and have tea with yes. her and her friends, and she turns up. The, this is not integral to the plot, and I'm not giving mm. away anything that's important. But they turn out to be the funnest, cutest, non-traditional group of friends. Quite yes. feminist. Yes, they're all independent women. Mm. They've got a, a range of different uh, occupations and skills, and they really added a lot of tongue-in-cheek. They're, they're really straight out of you know mm. 2021. 20, yes. <laughs> and they become her friends and sort of his friends and I really loved that part. It really didn't take itself so seriously in that respect at all. So, yeah, I have to say I actually really enjoyed it. And yeah, I, I think yours Meredith is better than it. mine. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But I sort of knew what I was getting into because I had heard people talking about it so I, I did know what to expect. So, which was your... Um, Selena, Selena Montgomery. Montgomery? Well, the yeah. Selena
1: Montgomery I read, which I much preferred, you know, is called Reckless. And it sort of has legs as a suspense story. And it it was far more sophisticated. You know, the the plot, the characters and the prose just generally were a lot more sophisticated, I felt, than the the Tessa Dare book that I read. So this is really the story of Kel Jamison, and she's a notorious Atlanta defence attorney. And she's returning to her childhood roots in rural Georgia when Eliza, who is a woman who had been a headmistress at the orphanage that Kel had attended... Uh, and who is really like a mother to her, becomes a murder suspect and so she needs Kel's help to defend Mm. her. And so there's lots of flashbacks to Kel's childhood. In the orphanage. And her friends, Finn and Julia. And I understand that there are other books about the trio of friends. Right, Okay. And I couldn't work out where this sort of fitted, but it it completely stands alone. So I'm just going to read a little bit of the back cover. So, independent, stunning and smart, Kel Jamison has the life she's always dreamed about, a partner at a Tony Atlanta law firm that represents famous, if guilty, clients. She's far from her days as a lonely orphan in rural Georgia, but one frantic phone call will bring her back to the place she's spent years trying to escape. The head of her childhood orphanage has been accused of murder and Kel is her only hope for freedom. Because <laughs> uh, no
0: other lawyer will do this. Absolutely.
1: And then from the first moment Kel meets Sheriff Luke Calder, tempers and attraction flair, ruggedly handsome and a stickler for law and order, <laughs> Luke finds Kel compelling. Unfortunately, she represents his prime suspect. Oh. <laughs> and then this is it forced to work together right. they dig deep into the town scandals but Kel has a secret of her own and and it's all about sort of the the trust between them and the, the you know myriad
0: of conflicts that they both have right you mean legal <laughs> conflicts of interest yes, well, or absolutely okay because
1: <laughs> you know, they're on opposite together. sides yeah,
0: exactly does the judge say approach <laughs> the bench <laughs> we don't even get to court oh okay <laughs> Um, <laughs> well, that's a little bit similar because in my Selena Montgomery, she also goes back to her hometown. Yes, yes, and the past is all stirred up. Yes,
1: and but what, yeah. what, you know what I like about it is, is that from the get go, we sort of have this independent, confident character. Yeah, you know who who has this glittering career. Yes, um, so she's every bit, a a, and, an equal. Yes. with with, yes. with the male character. So to me it's so much more kind of he's not going to save a poor waif. (laughs) No, exactly, and they sort of meet each other on sort of equal turf. And and so to that extent I think in this genre it's far more um, equal. And, And actually this book was much more chaste. Than the Tessa Dare book, yes. Yeah, so, so is mine. Yeah. So is my hidden sins. It,
0: um, it got a bit raunchy at the end, and there's a lot of unresolved sexual tension. Yes. that it, it leads up to, yes. and then there's and, one. And I think I think they have. Big, that's exactly
1: right. They have sex once, but there's a lot of sort of leading up yeah, to it. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the Tessa Dare book, yeah, it's yeah. on
0: for young and yeah, old. Yeah, so is mine. <laughs> Well, I read out all the chapters. And <laughs>
1: <Yes>. <laughs> if people don't want to read, yeah, it, they just, just just straight go straight, to, straight to,
0: chapter chap- to chapter seven. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, I think she sort of hooks you in, Selena. So, look, I, I quite enjoyed it, and, yeah. and probably because it is partly sort of a crime mystery novel, yes, as yes. well. So that makes me look forward to yeah, her yeah. book that she's releasing at the end of the year. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. That was Reckless, author of Secret and Lies, Selena Montgomery. Yeah. No, that sounds good. Like,
0: mm. No, I'm really looking forward to her big new one that's coming out soon. Mm. So did you have some book news that you were going to talk about, Lou? Um, I thought I might mention the Dr. Zeus news.
1: Oh, yes. I had a girlfriend ring me actually to say she was sort of uh, appalled that the Dr. Zeus books were going to be banned. So I thought I'd do a bit of sort of digging into it a little bit more. And it turns out that the books are not being banned at all. This is a decision that the Dr. Zeus Foundation has made itself to sort of remain alert, um, I suppose, to Social capital and various things, and they have sort of done a a review of the books in their publishing inventory, and they've decided to no longer publish six books.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? It is
1: interesting. So I, I don't think it's a censorship as such because they're doing it themselves, and they're not really any of the books that you immediately think of with Dr. Seuss. I think one is Scrambled Eggs. Another one is um, the zoo, one about the zoo. Oh, okay. Um, So, of course, it made me go and read a couple of them. Of course, that's the trouble. You immediately want to read You immediately read them. And look, certainly the one about the zoo does contain some, you know, racial stereotypes. There's there's no question it does in the physical description of some of the characters. And so, you know, I think it's... I think it's pretty fair enough, actually. I yeah. think that it is something that we need to be alert to. I mean, on the one hand, you might argue, well, you know, you should leave the books published so that children have an opportunity for a dialogue about it. Yeah. But they're very young children that are reading these books. Oh, yeah, my gosh. And there's a lot of repetition in Dr. Seuss. Yes, that rhythm
0: and rhyme. And, yeah. and so I think... You know, I, I actually think it was a fairly reasonable yeah. thing for them to do. Well, in the context that there are so many Dr Seuss books, mm. this is not really going to make a dint in no. his oeuvre. No, no. <laughs> it would be interesting, though, if he had only written seven books yes. and six of them yes. were from publication. Yeah. I would probably think, yeah. oh, that's a bit hard. That's yeah. a bit
1: tough. But again, it's not a an independent party,
0: well, it's not him because no. he's no longer around. But so it is his just, foundation. Yeah, yeah. So interesting. Yeah, anyway, it's it is interesting.
1: Be very happy to hear because from people we, what
0: they think. If we did the same with all the millions of classics that are out there that yes. have, particularly, a lot of anti-Semitic yes. references. Uh, the books that I read, the classics that I read, probably have more. Anti-Semitic comments in them and an absence of diversity.
1: Well, I discussed that with my friend Kathy. We 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 talked about that very fact and Trollope and 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 Dickens and Wharton. We we read Wharton last year and it was terrible. Many of them them do, but they are adult books true they are adults yeah. and yes in edith wharton the character was there were physical descriptions given to him yeah. in the
0: anti-Semitism, yeah. and you and i both commented that that was wrong yeah absolutely but i think you're right the children aspect is is the big yes. issue here yeah gosh it's very interesting and this is not going to go away this issue and as society changes more and more i think this is going to happen more and more <clears throat> and people go back and look at all sorts of pieces of art, including books, through the prism of the year they're living in and find them wanting. I I think... A decision has to be made about whether to keep reading them or displaying the artwork or whatever it might be.
1: And the ones they've removed, from what I can see, and I haven't read all six of them, I've read two of them, it's quite an overt comment. It's quite a direct, overt comment. It's not something that we're... There could be, you know, yeah. much debate. Yeah. Did he mean that? Did he
0: not mean yeah. that? It's it's, yeah. it's quite... I saw it on Twitter, but I didn't go and read any of them. But I, I did think to myself, mm, it's very interesting. Very and very and interesting. an
1: interesting decision to make themselves, almost to get ahead of the game. Yeah.
0: Well, maybe that's a smart thing to do. Maybe, maybe there should be a bit more of that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and, you know, there are lots of children's books around. It's not like, as you said, we're denuding the Zeus collection. Yeah. Yep. Um, we've still got Green Eggs and Ham. We've yep. still got Cat in the Hat. Are You My Mother? Yeah, there's well. still <laughs> plenty of uh, so many. fantastic Dr yeah, Seuss books. Yeah. And, you know, uh, as I chatted to my friend, they are sort of the rhythm and the rhyme and the repetition, they really are wonderful books mm. for
0: developing language and mm. literacy. Yes, it's probably not a great loss. No. If it's only six out of uh, many, many, many. So what else have you been diving into lately, Lou?
1: Look, I haven't, you know, I've watched a little bit of
0: Netflix. I did watch the uh,
1: thriller Behind Her Eyes. Still haven't got to oh. that. Is it good? <gasps> it's incredible. And I, Yeah, just sort of don't want, it, it's only six episodes. We sort of watched three and three. The ending just was not what I was expecting at all. Great cast, you know the th- sort of three main actors in it are just superb all three of them uh one of them is i think eve houston who's bono's i didn't realize that d- uh daughter and who's very beautiful and mesmerizing. she's got a very beautiful mother yeah, yeah yes she's mesmerizing in Aww. this and, and very chilling eyes and she's she's incredible. But the other two are also superb, superb yeah. actors. The things
0: you've said about it are the things I've heard as well. Yeah. That seems yeah, to no, be the general really, consensus. Really oh, okay. uh, but I, I really,
1: I, I'm not saying that I was particularly satisfied by no, the No, that's ending. what I've heard. Yeah. yeah. But my uh, husband, Gus, said he thinks they're setting it up for a second series. Oh, okay. So we'll see. We'll see whether mm-hmm. it's a standalone. But, yeah, I can recommend that you got to watch it. We've also been watching on, on just our free-to-air industry which is a series about uh, young graduates and their bosses at a firm, Peer Point, which is like a, a bank, basically. Oh, okay. So they're traders on the floor. Right. Oh, it's, Just, it's everything about, you know, yeah. trading and banking, That all the stere- awful yeah. stereotypes oh, about uh, young
0: people working incredibly long hours mm-hmm. and uh, it's very racy. It's, uh, so it's a drama. It's a drama. So it's all made up. This is not following, well, it's, it's not any sort of a docudrama. No, it's not docudrama, it's, no, it's okay. but it's written by two guys who... Oh, who know what they're talking about. Yeah, okay. who, who oh, worked...
1: Fantastic. Uh, ...as traders for a bank. So it's all that excess. Yeah. It's sort of excess that we normally associate with the 80s and 90s. Like but, Gordon Gecko. Yeah, so all the excess of drugs and sex C- and long hours. and Yeah, so anyway, we're enjoying it. Yeah, yeah, um, oh, that sounds good. And what else? Oh, there's so much response to your serum <laughs> life hack, Virginia. <laughs> I had friends mention to me, what serums does she use? So my life hack today is just so boring by comparison. I'm just going to tell you all but if you need to peel ginger, peel it with a spoon. Because? It just comes off really easily. Oh, so, I didn't know that. Yeah. I always cut around it and, and then no, start grating.
0: If you get a spoon and just peel it with the edge of the spoon, it just comes off. That is an excellent life hack. That is as good as serums, Lou. (laughs) On the subject of my serums, I have been asked to uh, list my serums. So what I thought I might do is take a photo of them. Good idea. Which I'm hoping I won't get any sort of negativity. (laughs) I'm a bit worried that... I might get criticised for my serums, but <laughs> I'm going to bite the bulletins. I think the bullet your self-esteem and... <laughs> is intact, Virginia. Well, it's think... more its more just the money I've spent on them yeah, in, okay. You know, in, that's okay. in lockdown. You know, yeah, I bought many of them in lockdown. You haven't
1: been travelling. <laughs> you were no, allowed to buy serums. Yeah, yeah
0: exactly, exactly. Yeah, it was no, my little fun. No
1: hate on the Diving <laughs> In podcast
0: <laughs> at all. Not, <laughs> <not>. <laughs> what about you? What have you been um, diving into? After you pointed me in the direction of the... Jonathan Swan interview on yes. Conversations. Yes. I had been toying with the idea of listening to his Jonathan Swan's Axios podcast, How It Happened. Yes. And I just hadn't got around to it. You should explain the connection to Australia. Yes. Yeah, so, Jonathan Swan is an Australian journalist. His father is Norman Swan. And uh, Norman Swan is a medical practitioner who has been basically keeping me sane throughout the <laughs> pandemic. He's amazing. Today, the day we're recording, he and Tegan Taylor aired their one-year anniversary of their Coronacast mm. podcast. It's a most excellent podcast mm. all brilliant. about the coronavirus and it, it will be the most fascinating archive of historical reference for the arc of the whole I agree. Um, pandemic because it reflects all the different stages mm. that we have gone through. And, and we're at that one year point. I was talking with a friend the other day and remembering we're heading to that point where things were starting to get pretty real a year ago. And so they started the Corona Cast podcast. And Norman's one, the father, is just in- eminently sensible. He interprets all of the mm. medical and scientific data. And they've had some really good guests on recently. Mm. During the whole
1: tricky period for people. I mean, obviously, it's still tricky for a lot of people, but yeah. here in Australia, whenever people would talk about COVID, I'd just go, listen to CoronaCast, yeah. listen to CoronaCast, yeah. because there was so much information there, and swirling around. misinformation. Absolutely. And, yeah, and, and a he, lot of fear. He'd he'd make it accessible.
0: Just and very sensible. And they're and only 10 or 12 minutes yeah, long each fantastic. episode. So really it's literally good. been the first thing I do every yeah. single morning for one year. Mm. So Jonathan Swan is his son, and he conducted the very now famous interview with... President Trump, where Trump started handing bizarre graphs of paper to him. He lives say in America, where doesn't he? He's in America. He's stationed in America with his family and... Uh, Donald Trump was saying, "We're beating the world," and Jonathan, so beating the world in what? <laughs> he was With very the- tenacious, wasn't he? He kind of was yes. pleasant about his interview, yes. but he, he and on. I think, there's a feeling that because he's Australian, he's not as intimidated and no. he's sort of happier to sort of speak truth to power, perhaps, and mm. perhaps some of the American journalists who have historically been taught to hold that office in high esteem and Mm. and rightly so but Mm. yeah I thought his interview was fantastic Mm. and so he did this interview on conversations all about his new podcast and so then I went and listened to it I think it's five episodes Mm. I just loved it and I Mm. particularly loved the bit about the advertisement that was run by the Lincoln Project for an audience of one And, of course, we never saw it. I'd never heard anything about it. It just ran in uh, D.C., And it was purely designed to be seen by one very important person. Such a good podcast. Mm. He's obviously got some really good inside contacts. Mm. I hope he doesn't get into trouble. Yeah. Because he's telling things that happened in private conversations that he's obviously been told all about. Yeah, he's definitely got some insiders, yeah. hasn't he? he you know, he's got it's some good insiders. Very
1: good insiders. And, yeah. the, and the detail yeah. of what he is able to say occurred. Absolutely. And I do not think he would be reporting that unless he had actually yeah. got that verbatim
0: yeah. from an insider. Yeah, and he's got a huge team of fact-checkers. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's a really good podcast. And then uh, just on one other cute one that I've listened to the other day, which I really enjoyed because I do like things historical. I listened to an episode about Marie Antoinette mm. and it's on the podcast You're Wrong About. I don't know yes. if you've... yes listen to any of those, they go back, it's it's Michael Hobbs and Sarah Marshall, and every week they sort of reconsider a person or an event that's been sort of miscast in the public imagination, or that's how they put it. It's sort of looking back at things that happened in the past through the prism of 2021. It's a bit or revisionist history. A little bit like that, yeah. yeah. And in this episode on Marianne Tremet, they have an, a guest called uh, Dana, I think that's how she pronounces it, Dana Schwartz. And she has a podcast herself called Noble Blood, Mm. which is all about different members of the aristocracy and nobility and sort of interesting things about them. So I'm going to actually start Mm. listening to that because I find it fascinating. But it's so interesting and accessible and fascinating about Marie Antoinette and how she was Austrian and she arrived at the palace when she was 13. Um, She arrived at Versailles and... The course of history and and, you know the the quote let them eat cake and we all know that's not the true Mm. quote but they go into that as well so it was a really fun and very informative episode so and quite a lot of laughs in there so I'd recommend that as well. Excellent. So there was one other thing you were going to mention Lou wasn't there? Yes.
1: The book, How to Be an Author, The Business of Being a Writer in Australia by Georgia Richter and Deborah Hun, we mentioned this last we week. We did. We're going to start doing some tips on writing. Yes. By the time this episode airs, you will have seen the book on Instagram. it. we're going to post a picture and uh, run a competition. Yes. So the competition is going to be on Instagram this week. So make sure, well, actually, it'll already have been on by the time this is released. So make sure you enter because we've got um, a couple of these to give away. I've got two to give away.
0: And then we're going to start talking next episode um, about things that have caught our eye that might be interesting to to anybody who's thinking that they might like to write their family history or capture, you know, their grandmother's story or write their own history or... Finally, publish the book that they've been yeah. longing to write all their lives, or when like.
1: I, I was reading this week the chapter that they have about triggers for creativity, um, and it's great. The sort of you know, how you start everyone mm. says sit down and write, yeah. but how do you actually yeah. start yeah. What, with a blank page and yeah, a pen? It's yeah. not easy. So <laughs> we'll definitely talk about that next episode. In the meantime, look out for the post because we would love to give these books away.
0: Yes, so that's it from us today. That was a fun episode, Lou. I loved doing <laughs> that, I, I loved reading outside our normal job, our comfort zone. <laughs> it was really good fun. And I think they are great books for a complete diversion from the pandemic world, frankly. Yes, they are. <laughs> so thank you very much for listening. We hope that if you like our podcast, you'll tell a friend, maybe leave us a review because that helps other people find us. And we look forward to seeing you again soon. Yes. Bye. Bye.
1: We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening. And thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now.
0: Up, up, in, in. Up, up,
1: in, in. Uh, one of them is, I think. E-